California, the minute you get above five employees, a lot of these laws start kicking in. And that's the point where you can lose a lot of value if you haven't done this right. That's today's guests, Krista Cabrera and Louis Lowe, two attorneys from Foley and Laudner who are experts in employment law. So adding and managing employees is a crucial step for startup founders, and you want to make sure you do it right. I know from my own experience that running a startup is hard enough without unexpected employment law issues. In this episode of the Fourthly Podcast, Krista and Louis share some of the most common pitfalls for startups when it comes to employment law and how to avoid them. I'm Brent Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. Joining me this morning is Krista Cabrera. Good morning, Krista. Hello, good morning. Where are you joining from today? San Diego, California. San Diego, California, home of delicious fish tacos. That is right. The best. (laughs) The very best. So Krista, give us the brief background around you. Sure. Let's see. I've been a California employment lawyer for a little over 20 years, which makes me feel very old. Um, My practice focuses exclusively on California employment law issues. I do about 50% litigation. So defending companies when they're sued for sexual harassment, a lot of wage and hour class actions, meal period violations, rest period violations, overtime violations, that kind of thing. And then about 50% advice and counseling. So drafting and reviewing handbooks, drafting policies, and just providing, you know, advice on leave issues, termination issues, that kind of thing. Awesome. Terrific. And also joining us is Louis Lowe. Louis, your audio is a little funky, but we'll uh, we'll get through it as best we can. So, Louis, when, when you and I meet for lunch in downtown Palo Alto, we typically meet for fish tacos at Sancho's Taqueria. But Krista tells me that the fish tacos in San Diego are actually the best fish tacos in the world. Without yeah. So, so, Louis, I think this means that you and I are going to have to make a trip down to uh, San Diego sometime soon. You know, I was thinking this morning about how, you know, no, nobody loves employment law, right? I've never heard any company founders say to me, the thing I love about running a company is I love employment law. (laughs) Never, 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 ever. Never. And yet, you know, it turns out to be, if you want to found a company, you know, it turns out to be one of the most important regulatory areas to understand and comply with. You know, it's one of the main things that startups end up getting dinged for and potentially fined for is uh, violations with regard to treating somebody as a contractor when the law says you should be as an employee or exempt or non-exempt and all these other things. So Krista, if a startup founder comes into your office as a brand new client and says, you know, I'm about to make my first hires, you know, what are the top three things I should know? You know, what would you, what would you tell that startup founder? That startup founder would be very smart. Let's start there. (laughs) For seeking counsel before stepping into the very, very um, dangerous seas of employment law in California Um, or anywhere really, but, but, you know, things are are hyper-regulated in California. Right. Um, So the first thing I would say is do not, without thinking about it and without seeking counsel, start classifying your workers as independent contractors. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes we see founders of startups make. 
they, you know, the people working for them don't want to deal with having taxes taken out of their paycheck. Right. The founder doesn't want to deal with setting up employees and getting an employee ID number and taking right. out taxes. And so they think, oh, we'll just make you a contractor, no problem. And I mean, it's a, there's a lot of risk associated with independent mis, uh, contractor misclassification throughout the country. Yeah. But in California in particular, there are very rare and limited circumstances where you can appropriately make someone an independent contractor. So that's yeah. the first thing I would, would talk to your lawyer about is, can we classify any of our workers as independent contractors or do we need to make them all employees? Right. And I hate to tell you this, but 99% of the time, the answer is going to be, you really need to make them employees. Right. And, I, you know, I've done this myself, right? That, you know, those first few team members, you tend to want to say, you know what, just, just invoice me every month. I'll pay yep. you as a contractor. That way, yep. you know, that way I don't deal with payroll and you don't have to deal with withholding and it'll be a whole lot easier for all of us. I think on the EDD site, there's a, um, I think there's a page that kind of, helps understand the circumstances under which you can pay somebody as a contractor versus the circumstances under which you require to treat them as an employee. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the current state of the law in California is uh, there's a statute it's called AB five. And oh, yeah. I mean, it, it basically it lays out what is called the ABC test. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to meet three factors, factors A, B, and C in order to classify a worker as an independent contractor. And, you know, essentially the, the, the factor B is where a lot of companies get tripped up. The person has to be doing work that is essentially unrelated to what the company does. So if you've got someone doing the critical work of your company, they are probably not going to be able to be classified as a contractor. And the sort of classic examples you see of of a true, properly classified independent contractor is like a retail establishment brings a, a, a cabinet maker in to build some cabinets. Yeah. Or, I mean, truly like, you know, a law firm brings in a plumber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Walks around our offices and waters our plants. You know, we're not in the business of selling plants. We're, we're a law firm. I mean, that's truly a contractor. So if you think about it in those terms, it's easy to see oof, most of the time we're dealing with, with a problem if we're making people contractors. Now, there are many exceptions to AB5. Hmm. Um, for example, there's like a business to business exception. So if you are a business working with another business and several independent factors are met, like the business is a true business. It's set up as, you know, an LLC um, or a corporation, hmm. lots of other requirements. The business does work for others as well. Then you can, you can, you can fit an exception to that ABC test in which case a much more employer-friendly test applies, a multi-factor test, and you look at a lot of things rather than this very rigid ABC test. But even if one of those exceptions applies, it doesn't mean automatically you're home free, this person can be a contractor, it just means we're going to apply a slightly less rigid test to determine whether this worker can be a contractor. Got it. First thing is to just really understand the legalities around who you can treat as a contractor and who you're exactly. required to treat as an employee, but then the payroll stuff. That, that oh, is right. Great. Uh, now that I understand that, I'm going to make my first hire. And so I meet somebody over a beer and I say to them, tell you what, come to work for my new startup, pay you 80 grand a year. Uh, do you have any questions? 
Is that the right way to do it? I would say once you get through that interview process and you decide you want to inter- you want to hire the person, you're going to want to send them an offer letter. Mm. That's what I recommend. Mm-hmm. You put so it down be- on paper. So just talking over beer and pretzels doesn't cut it? You know, beer and pretzels is great for <laughs> beer and pretzels yeah. <laughs> um, i would i would absolutely uh put it in an offer letter right and make it clear that that unless you've agreed to something different than this and sometimes you have to but 99 percent of the time it's just going to be employment at will meaning you can terminate this person at any time for any reason and they can resign at any time for any reason and you want to put that in your letter i mean i will say in california and in most states employment is presumptively at will so even if you don't say it that is the case unless you promised i'm only going to fire you for cause and if i fire you without cause i'm going to give you six months severance but um it still never hurts to put it in writing your employment is at will we can terminate you at any time and you can leave at any time for any reason. Right. And then you're also going to want to set forth um, just the basics, the person's salary, the type of benefits you're going to be providing. And and then you're, you're going to want to think about what those benefits are. You know, you can be pretty vague about it in an in offer letter. You can say you're going to get the same benefits as other employees, you know, our handbook will mm-hmm. set benefits you get. You don't have to really get into everything in the offer letter, but you do mm-hmm. want to think about the fact that, you know, depending on where that person works, there might be a, a sick leave statute or ordinance that you've got to comply with. So they've got to, right. get, you know, maybe three days sick leave if it's certain parts of California more, if it's other parts of California, you know, so you're just going to need to think about the types of benefits you need to give them one way or the other, you know, refer to benefits in that letter, you know, and then there are some you know, you've got to tell them that they're going to need to be able to show that they can work in the United States. Just a few basic things you're yeah. going to want to put in that offer letter. Right. So to me, the one of the key things there is the at will thing. You know, it's very important to be explicit about the fact that this is an at will employment relationship, meaning, as you said, meaning that you can quit at any time and I can fire you at any time. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I think another thing you want to be really clear about in that letter is the salary. One, you know, if we're sort of talking about sort of like the three big things where where startups can get in trouble. Another one is um, exempt misclassification. We talked about uh, factor misclassification. Yeah. Another issue we see is treating everyone as just a salaried employee, not making anyone track their time, not thinking about meal and rest breaks, not paying overtime, not really yeah, thinking yeah. about minimum wage. Because I don't, you know, I got to start, I got to start up. I don't want to deal with tracking time and all that crap. I just want to pay everybody a flat salary. Why is that, that is, why is, why is that not okay, Krista? That is fine and well <laughs> if the person you're hiring meets the appropriate uh, requirements for being what we call an exempt employee. And when I say exempt, I mean exempt from overtime, essentially. Exempt from the types of rules that apply to our employees. It's fine if, number one, you're paying the person at least two times the minimum wage. There is a salary threshold. So you can't pay someone $25,000 a year and call them exempt. they got to be paid at least two times the minimum wage. And number two, they've got to be doing what we call exempt work. And there are, you know, certain, and this is another, um, the EDD website that you mentioned earlier will lay this out. The Department of Labor, the California Department of Labor website will lay this out as well. Um, but, you know, I would obviously suggest you, you seek counsel on this. You're going to need to figure out whether they meet one of these exempt tests. So there's like an executive exemption that could apply to your C-level employees, folks that are overseeing a department or the entire company. 
there's the uh, administrative exemption that applies to uh, people doing, you know, white collar work. Mm. Um, so there are various exemptions that can apply. One through line for all of them is the work has to require independent discretion. So they've got a real uh, regarding matters of importance to the company. So this can't be someone who's just doing data entry or just taking directions to properly be exempt and just be paid a salary and no overtime. You got to be doing really important work that requires thought, that requires analysis, in addition to fitting one of these particular right. tests and making at least right. two times the minimum wage. If you don't so, have that, you do need to pay these people by the hour, give them overtime, track their time, all of that fun stuff. Right. So if anybody in our audience is not familiar with exempt and non-exempt, I highly recommend you just Google it. Google it right now or make a note and Google it later that this concept of exempt and non-exempt is a really important concept to understand. Um, and that, as Krista said, there's a variety of kind of tests for uh, whether you can treat somebody as not exempt or whether you have to treat them as as you know other way around whether you at all so krista you know i've got a startup you know we want to uh, uh conserve cash um and so you know me and my co-founders and everybody you know we're working for free right now because you know we got to get this thing off the ground any concerns there major concerns and we see this <laughs> all the time you uh you uh you got to pay people to work for you Otherwise, it's basically indentured servitude. And that is a no-no. <laughs> you do, I, and I know this is such a typical scenario with you know, young startups. Like, let's just, you know, sweat equity. We're going to work for free. We'll get paid on the back end. And that just is not compliant with the law. Um, and, and the problem is these types of people who are starting companies, you know, usually are higher level. So you can't just say, okay, fine. I've got to pay these people who are sort of getting the company started, I'll just pay the minimum wage. I mean, you could do that, that's fine. But then remember, you've got to deal with, they've got to track their time, they've got to take meal breaks, they've got to take rest breaks, you've got to pay them overtime. You're not going to want to do that usually with really high level people starting a company, which means you are going to have to pay at least two times the minimum wage. So are there any workarounds for this? Because like I said, we want to conserve cash. We don't want to be paying anybody any money. You know, there uh, there. You can potentially, and this gets a little more into business law, so I get nervous. I don't like to dabble in areas where I'm not an expert, but I will say there, I think you could potentially, if the business is an LLC and the people doing the work are members, I do believe you could potentially have their membership interest be their compensation. But I would say you're really going to want to talk to a combination like business lawyer and employment lawyer to see yeah. about whether that is workable. Right. There, There isn't a workaround. You do have to pay people who are working for you. Brent, I'm going to take another shot at the audio here, and I hope that's wow. okay. Wow, Louie, your, your timing is perfect, Louie. Well, so uh, the way I just I mentioned see business this, lawyers and you magically appeared. Yeah. Uh, the way I see it, there are six times that a founder needs to think about employment law or in, in six kind of audiences. And, and the first is uh, typically when, when we hear about a startup, uh, generally somebody is working for another company already. Uh, you're, you're, you're working for, uh, uh, Hulu, uh, the mythical company on, on the, the, the Silicon Valley, uh, uh, TV show on HBO. You've got a startup idea and you've got to think about 
what are my obligations to my current employer? And, and your new startup should be done on your own device, personal device, not a work device. It should be done on your own time. And you've got to be very careful uh, about overlapping uh, areas of, of uh, expertise and, and product roadmap, because that is uh, a recipe for disaster if, if you try and take your current employer's idea and spin it out into your own startup without their permission. So that, mm-hmm. that's the first um, uh, area. The second area is, is when you start your new company, you've, you've got to recruit other founders and they're going to need some sort of compensation. They're going to need, they're going to want some sort of a title status position. Uh, then after you've formed your company, uh, your investors, you're, you're looking to raise money and your investor is going to go look at your, your setup and they're going to say, is this safe? Uh, and they're going to want to see that um, to some extent, there's been at least nominal compliance with employment laws because no investor is going to want to buy a class action lawsuit or a dispute between founders or a dispute with a prior employer. Uh, so when I'm investor counsel, and, and again, we work with hundreds of companies in, in the emerging growth space as well as investors, you know, we're looking at, at those areas. I would say you know, as you're moving along in the life of your company, you've been funded, uh, you exist, you're, 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 you're kicking butt and, and you're hiring people, uh, you're then worried about, uh, are you paying your payroll taxes? Is everybody on payroll uh, properly documented? As as uh, Krista's noted, have you have you made sure that they're all um, uh, eligible to work in the United States, or have you gotten a proper visa? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, next, you have the government, uh, and that's a constituency that, who's going to be checking that you're you're declaring the proper amount of employment tax. Uh, and you're you're taking care of things, uh, and then finally, when you go to sell your company uh, or go public for that matter, have some sort of an exit. You're going to have a lot of eyes on everything you've done up to then, and that's a point where you can lose a lot of value if you haven't done this right. It's it's the first place where a buyer is going to say, "Well, geez, I'm going to need to take a 10 percent hold back against the purchase price to cover any indemnity issues that I might have with the government or with a former employer or or with employees. That's a big potential area. And then after you've sold the company, I would say um, failure to comply with employment issues is the number one area where we see post the M&A claims against sellers. So the buyers go ahead and buy your company. Uh, You're, you're, you're feeling great. And then suddenly you start to get notifications uh, in your email box that money's being held back against that (laughs) escrow that you gave. And it's clear you're never getting it back because if, buyers start to do an investigation or uh, start to study this thing, that means that there are people on the clock, taxi meters are running, and that means it's hitting your bank account. Uh, So, Brett and Krista, those are the areas kind of that I see, and and I think there are six, maybe there were seven, uh, I lost count, Uh, not good at counting anything more than tacos. No, yeah, yeah. It's a problem with lawyers. We're not good at math. I love what you just said, Louis, and it, it raised a cut, got me percolating on a few more sort of necessary things to do as you grow. An employee handbook yeah. is something that companies need as they grow. Listen, when you're just starting out and you've got, I don't know, three employees, just the basic policies that are required under the law, fine. You know, you've got to, you've got to give people, um, you know, you've got to have a, a, a harassment policy. You're going to want an EEO policy. There are some very basic policies you're going to want to have in place. But as you grow, you really are going to need a whole full-blown handbook because the minute really in California, the minute you get above five employees, 
a lot of these laws start kicking in. The, the, the CFRA, which is the California version of the FMLA, meaning you're going to have to give people up to 12 weeks of leave for, you know, family medical leave. Um, the pregnancy disability leave law is going to apply right away. So you're going to need a policy explaining how that works if you're, any of your employees become pregnant and need time off. So you really do want to want to pretty early on start thinking about getting just a real basic handbook in place that covers all of those um, those various policies. And um, oh, oh, and the other thing, and I know this is sort of venturing a little bit into the world of um, IP, but another thing you're definitely going to want to have either in your offer letter or as a separate document that you present to your new employee with your offer letter is a proprietary information and invention assignment agreement, a PIIA or PIA, or, you know, there's lots of different words, uh, yeah. uh, lingo to use, but basically... Yeah. A document saying, here is what we consider proprietary. You may never take this information. You may not use this information other than in connection with your work and anything you invent while working for us, you assign to us. It's going to be important to have that as well. Um, I want to go back to something else that, that you asked, Brett, and, and, and that is, um, what do you do if things aren't perfect? Oh, my gosh, it's the real world. And you don't have money to pay all these people 2x minimum wage. And you don't have a break room. Uh, you, you don't have a ping pong table. You don't have a dog. Uh, you don't have a dollar. That's right. uh, and no, what do you no, do? Free, no free tacos at lunch. No free tacos at lunch. And, you know, I, I, I live in this world with a lot of our early stage, uh, seed stage, pre-seed stage companies. And, you know, we, we do our best to make sure that as much as we can to comply and and where we're not, you know, we're 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 trying to uh, make up for it later. And yeah. um, uh, we're compensating people with equity so that certainly uh, they won't feel like they've been shortchanged if uh, if things uh, get better. And, you know, we make do. And that's um, that's something of an art rather than a science. And uh, it doesn't mean that it's OK not to comply with the law. But I, I will say that there is the, the, the real world of reality that many startups are in, which is that they don't have cash to, to right. do these things. And, and you, you move along. Louis, can we can we accrue wages against a promissory note? Is that Kosher? No. no. Krista's shaking her head. I will just say, I mean, I mean could, could you do it? Sure. Is it is it technically legally compliant? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Have I seen it done many times? Unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. And it yeah, resulted yeah. in indemnification claims when we discovered it later and, and the buyer discovered it and, and charged the sellers for the, the liabilities that, that accrued. So of right. course, the, the problem, uh, Brett, with accruing a note is that you're failing to pay the payroll tax as and when they come due and you're not yes. complying with, with the yes. law. There is that so again, moment. you have an issue right. with the employee. You have an, an issue with the government. You're going to have an issue uh, at some point with auditors if they're auditing your financials, uh, which probably doesn't happen until after you right. sell the company or go public. And, and right. then you will pay for it times right. multiples of, of what you did. And then you'll have a problem with your spouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we see these problems all the time and, and we come and, and we deal with them, Brad. And, and uh, so I don't want anybody out there to panic. Robert asks a really good question, which is, uh, do the founders have to sign a PIA? That's the most important uh, document yeah. uh, of yeah. the entire startup right there. Yeah, uh, great. It is a great 
question. Great, great I have question. A, I, have a, yeah. I have a binder in front of me right now. I've got a case where the founder didn't. I mean, he founded the company. He made everybody else sign one. He didn't. Yeah. Founder needs yep. to sign one. Yep. So, and this is a good segue into kind of something you touched on earlier, Louis, which is, um, so, you know, you've, you've handled a lot of venture capital financings in, uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, and beyond in any financing, there's due diligence that happens. And in every due diligence process, all kinds of skeletons come tumbling out of the closet. And so Louis, how, in your experience, how often is it that one of those skeletons has something to do with, with, uh, employment law compliance? I'd say it's the number one issue that we come across uh, in right. due diligence of any kind. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, if you're on the company side, you're going to want to disclose it. If you're on the investor side, you, you understand that that's an issue, whether you see it or not. Uh, you're not going to want a disclosure because that's going to hit your ability to get an indemnity later on down the line or to recover for it somehow. Um, and, and so um, what, what do you do? Well, again, I think you do your best. Right. And and that's uh, that's a a very deep uh, question, Brett. That would require many tacos and maybe some cervezas with the tacos. Mm, yeah, they, they go well together. It turns out, yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, to me, this is kind of the message for the three of us to communicate to the various founders on this call today: is that you know, running a company is hard enough as it is, without running into kind of unexpected compliance issues and unexpected uh, uh, employment law issues. And so, you know, my experience is get this stuff right the first time and keep it buttoned up. Um, and if you do that, if you make the effort to do offer letters, make sure everybody's at will, make sure everybody signs their PIAs, uh, make sure you understand exempt versus non-exempt contractor versus employee, if you do all that stuff up front, then you will find all of your financings and other transactions will go a whole lot smoother. Um, you know, Brent, I wanted to make a yeah. note on that. And, and yeah. uh, founders ask me often, you know, how do I do this? I've, I've raised a million dollars. Literally, how do I open payroll? And <laughs> right. in, in the last... Uh, you know, five years, there's just been a, a huge acceleration in, in the quality and accessibility, I would say, of technology tools to go do this for you. And and one that I recommend often is is called Gusto. Yeah, uh, yeah, and they, yeah. they, they provide uh, not only payroll, but they can provide some benefits, uh, some, you know, minimal benefits, and, and then they can help you, you know, build better benefits as you, as you go along. Uh, and it's, it's very easy to do yourself, manage it yourself, uh, kind of in the cloud. Um, paychecks is another that we see, mm -hmm. um, which is maybe for a, a, a bit larger company. Um, there's Trinet and, and there's many others. We, we yeah. don't have any preferences, but, you know, people like Krista and, and myself uh, who work with startups every day are, are happy to help founders navigate that. I, I would say ask your co-founder friends uh, as well what, what their experiences have been and what they like and, and didn't like. Um, and, you know, coming back to something you said, Brett, about, about you know, how to set this up right, you know, and, and I, you've heard me say this before, we see uh, startups all the time that have three big problems. One is they need money. Uh, two <laughs> is they need a legal structure to get that yeah. money. And three, they need a, a financial structure to manage the money. And I would yeah. say that doing all these sorts of things fits in that third bucket. You could call it financial, operational, HR, whatever. It's one bucket. And when you're building your co-founder team, 
you know, sometimes we see the, the, the one founder, the CEO, the chief everything officer takes everything on herself or himself. And, and that's fine. No judgment. And, and then other times, if you've got a group of, of several of you, you know, make sure that you've spelled out the roles that somebody is making this their responsibility uh, to do this. Or, you know, I, I think that there are some fractional uh, CFO firms uh, or, or <laughs> fractional CFOs that do a really good job of, mm-hmm. of of navigating the kind of zero to one phase of a startup, getting this stuff uh, off the ground. And, and you can always improve on it later. And with that, Brett, I'm going to turn it back to you and say thank you so much for bringing us all together again for one of these conversations. My pleasure, Louis. So we have one last question here that Akshita wants to get in, which is, so we've talked about exempt and non-exempt. So, you know, should we just treat everybody as non-exempt? Is that the right way to go? Right. Yeah, I see that question. And she says, what's the downside of having non-exempt? So the downside is um, it's absolutely the risk averse way to go. Yes. Right. We're okay. We're just giving everybody, treating everyone as non-exempt and they're all hourly. The downside is now you've got to properly track their time. So if you if your employees are non-exempt, they must clock in the minute they start working, clock out the minute they stop working. They must be paid overtime now. So if they work yeah, over eight hours in a day in California, we have daily overtime or over 40 hours in a week, they're getting time and a half. Once they get to, you know, it's like over 12 hours in a day or you know, certain thresholds, it becomes double time. You've got to make sure they take compliant meal and rest breaks. There are penalties if they don't. Um, and you could have potential off the clock issues. Like if these employees are working at home, let's say, and they don't record that time, you could, they could come back to you later and say, Oh, but I did all of this extra work you didn't pay me for. And oh, by the way, it was at an overtime rate. So they're just, you know, compliance is very, very challenging with non-exempt employees. It's absolutely what you've got to do if employees truly are doing non-exempt work. But it's not a choice most companies would make <laughs> uh, uh, voluntarily. Right. Excellent. Well, our time is just about up. Um, but this has been a great conversation. Uh, Kristen and Louis, thank you very much. I think, um, you know, this is obviously a highly complex topic. And the fact that, uh, you know, in 30 minutes, you guys gave us a nice kind of overview was terrific. So in the meantime, startup founders out there, here's the way I think about this. Many of you are technical people. Many of you are engineers. And so you know the term technical debt. So technical debt means you've had a team working on this software for, you know, for a couple of years now. And there's a whole bunch of duct tape and bailing wire that holds together various aspects. And you keep meaning to go back and address it. But of course, it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. That's the concept of technical debt in the engineering world. And that same concept applies to the discussion we've been having here today, that every startup, you know, begins kind of semi-compliant, but you don't want that to start building upon itself to the point where you realize a year or two in, you are so out of compliance that you're going to have real problems, not only with regulators, but also with investors. And so best to get on top of that stuff early, I think is the bottom line for me in terms of advice for startup founders. Kristen Louis, thanks again. See you soon. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support truly makes a difference. You can find out more at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.